Hello and welcome to The Long Line. We are a multidisciplinary team focused on improving the care of older patients who visit the emergency department which we work in. You can contact us via email at thelonglie@outlook.com. That's thelonglie@outlook.com, or follow us on Twitter at thelonglie1. Today's episode is on frailty. My name is Ian Tyrrell and I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in frailty. And I'm Alice Holt. I'm one of the emergency medicine consultants. So I think we should start the uh, podcast today by by answering the question, what is frailty? So I think for me, I think of frailty as a loss of physiological reserve. So it means that patients aren't able to mount a physiological response to any stressor. And that can be a medical stressor or it could be a social stressor or an emotional stressor. So, for example, if you fell over and you sprained your ankle, then you've got the physiological reserve to compensate for that. So you'd be able to use crutches and it wouldn't really affect your day to day living. Whereas if you've got an older, frail person who falls and sprains their ankles the chances are if they're living with more advanced frailty that they wouldn't have the physiological reserve that they needed to use those crutches and actually that minor injury has got a real big impact on their life so i think we should like clarify as well that frailty isn't just about chronological age it can be due to a, a whole number of factors and a whole number of systems can be affected and that can be through either illness or kind of long-term disease whether that's kind of from con congenital or whether or not it's because of um things that have happened to people during their lives also it can be self-inflicted so by, by kind of either alcohol, drugs, we can affect our organs and actually age them and make them uh, unable to kind of fight against stresses that we we may we may see. I think it's important. Why why is it important that we as emergency care clinicians are aware of frailty? I think what we have to think about, and we'll go on to how we score people um, from a frailty point of view in a little bit. But what we tend to try and fit people into is three different categories those people who are managing well those people who are managing with mild frailty and those who are who are living with severe frailty now what we find in the first group is that when they have a minor stress uh, stressor i.e a fall or an illness or an injury is that their function goes down a little bit but that they can soon recover to an almost similar level to where they were previously now those people living with mild frailty um actually suffer a quite a significant decrease in their function and it takes a longer time for them to pro to to progress and actually when they get to um when they become optimized they find that the level of function is a lot less than when it was previous prior to their stress and those living with severe frailty when they have their response to a stress stressor they have a significant decrease in function and they have a much longer period of recovery and actually what the the, the response to their stressor leads them to being a lot more dependent than they um than they were prior to the stress so what we have to think of is that a stressor for a frail person may have a have a significant impact on their life and on their function so we really need to take everything into consideration um so that we manage them most effectively or optimally so if we think about what type of press presentations to our emergency department may suggest that a patient is experiencing frailty 
I think here it's important to understand that patients with more severe frailty will present very atypically, um, usually with what we call the frailty syndromes or the geriatric syndromes, and they encompass delirium, falls, medication side effects, immobility, and incontinence. Now, that's that's the symptom of their disease entity. So as we've said before, the devil here really is in the detail. You've got to dig deep and you've got to really take a very comprehensive history and a comprehensive medication history to try and understand what the cause of that stressor is. Um, but those are really the frailty syndromes that you need to think about. And we know um, from the evidence that if a patient is medically assessed within two hours um, and then you follow that up by specific treatment and rehab, then we know that we can reduce morbidity um, and we can increase independence and long-term care needs of these patients um, who are living with frailty. So I think if we dig into a little bit of those frailty syndromes, now I know we've done episodes on, on, on kind of falls and delirium previously, but what we kind of have to think about is why had they presenting with this presentation today why in their 70 plus years of, of life have they suddenly um decided to have a fall or developed a delirium so it's really getting to the root of that i think some of the times again we we've talked a lot about throughout this series about kind of us as senior clinicians who are kind of ad advanced in, in in frailty who who have a great interest in frailty we will go that step further but what it can lead to is 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 sometimes we can have a bit of lazy medicine and we can apply phrases or kind of diagnoses because we haven't actually got to the bottom of um the root of the problem so those people who come in off their legs now unless they've had a, a a traumatic bilateral amputation i don't get that of being off your legs as a diagnosis there is something to actually have caused that and we've seen in, in recent cases in, in in our department where we have labeled something as decreased mobility whereas they've actually had a serious spinal pathology so actually we have to try and take into account that whole idea of holistic treatment and what that per person is like. And that's why it's important that if someone has come in with any of those five geriatric giants is that we're really kind of trying to get to the root of as to why they have presented to an emergency department today. I think that's a really important point. And that's something that I have now taken to writing in my medical notes is that my diagnosis is decompensated frailty secondary to whatever I think is is going on with and I think that's a much more helpful phrase than acopia or off legs which actually as you say I, I, I think is lazy medicine. Well we all know that acopia is actually one of the seven districts of, of the province Acameo in Peru <laughs> and that is helpfully pointed out and I have a picture of that in my phone for anyone who writes acopia in notes because I absolutely hate it and um, I, I think what we have to do is we have to think a little bit about the concept of frailty and we, we have to think about why is it important to measure it so we all have an idea of a 90 year old who is um who comes into our department who as soon as we they come into our certainly our ambulance triage area the first thing we do is we take off their clothes, we put a nondescript NHS gown on them um, and we lie them on a trolley. And this ultimately makes them look frail. Now, that 91 year old could have been running marathons the week previously or playing nine to, to 18 holes. So it's important that we realize what a person's level of function is before we decide on how frail they are. And 
frailty scoring and the most common one is the clinical frailty score um, and it it helps us understand vulnerabilities that chronological age doesn't provide um, and it's known that by kind of actually um, measuring their frailty it, we can improve their quality of life and manage the risks so it is important that we begin to measure frailty but I suppose the key for me is 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 when we it's not just because we know in our department we have to frailty score someone before we um when we're trying to medically admit them and for me we have to get that scoring right because in my mind it should link to where they go in, in terms of 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 where their their admission is based whether it go, they go to the frail elderly assessment unit or to a general medical ward so we need to know what that person was doing two weeks previously and it's not on how they present because if someone is acutely unwell they will appear a lot more frail and they will be a lot more dependent than they were possibly previously so we really have to understand and it's getting that detail and not just looking at the patient in front of you and then if we talk about the, the clinical frailty scales we kind of have grouped them already into three different sections so it's a scale from one to nine um, and generally the the patients who are in the cohort seven eight and nine are generally within their last 12 to 18 months of, of life we wouldn't be surprised if they were not here in six months and actually they are quite dependent both cognitively and physically um, and some of them may be terminally ill and approaching the last days of their life those in sections one to three they are very well they don't need any help and they're regular re exercising regularly um, or to some extent and then we go into the category that are kind of more significant in terms of four, five, and six, where they are slowing down, they're becoming more dependent, and they may need help with tasks. And they're the group that we really need to be kind of identifying and really helping and doing a comprehensive geriatric assessment to try and help kind of prevent them from slipping further in, into frailty so we can manage them effectively. So, yeah, I, th I think that's really important and it is important to measure it, not just because we have to before we refer a patient medically, but also to think what that means for the patient. So, as you've said, clinical frailty score one to three, we don't need to worry about too much, although there are obviously kind of risk modifying um, behaviours that we can talk to our patients about. But we know from the evidence that if you've got a patient who's got a clinical frailty score of four or more, then those patients are the ones that are much, much more likely to benefit from a CGA than those in the in the mild frailty category. And then as Ian rightly said, like if you've got somebody with a clinical frailty score of eight or nine, then really we need to start thinking about end of life planning with those patients, talking to our patients about it and about whether we need to start thinking about putting respect forms in. Yeah, so we, we, we go back to when we were thinking about a comprehensive geriatric assessment, and we'll go into the intricacies, in, intricacies that are involved in it in a minute, but we have to think about it as being patient-centered, and that is what matters to me, not what is the matter with me. And I think often we get overly concerned about finding a diagnosis or finding something that is wrong, rather than what is actually relevant or important to the person themselves. An awful lot of people who, who attend our emergency department will get referred for therapy assessments, for social assessments, when they have no interest in being seen by any of those people that they don't particularly want to be, in the, be there. So we really need to focus on patient-centered care um, and 
that is the key when dealing with frail older people. So if we think about a comprehensive geriatric assessment, uh, can we do it in the emergency department? Certainly, um, it, it is something that we can do in the emergency department. Um, so the comprehensive geriatric assessment was initially um, an assessment that was done on frailty wards. And the main evidence body um, really still focuses on CGA done on frailty, um, on the frailty wards. Um, and the evidence for it is really quite strong. So the number needed to treat for um, when you're using CGA is 20 um, to avoid one long term care placement over a six month period. And if we compare that with the number needed to treat for patients who take aspirin to prevent um, um, a stroke, um, and that's 120. So actually, it, it is a really, really effective assessment. Um, so after it was brought in to the frailty wards, then people started to think, oh, well, that's interesting and that's useful. And can we bring it in other places? And the answer is yes, we can. Um, I think traditionally it was thought we couldn't bring it into emergency departments because it was very, very time consuming. But the fact is that it's now being used in GP. It's now being used on other wards. And actually the, the domains of the comprehensive geriatric geriatric assessment we're doing quite a few of those domains anyway so we're already doing the medical assessment we're already doing the medication review hopefully and then hopefully if we're sending people home um, then we're already getting the therapy assessment anyway so it's just about putting all of that information together and then coming up with a, a plan that is tailored towards that patient and i suppose if if we take it on a national kind of um prospect the the whole getting it right first time for frailty patients obviously advocates that um emergency departments have some form of in-reach team supported by geriatricians or uh, frailty practitioners so that they are that they can help support that process i think if we talk locally about the, the team that we have in, in, in our unit, we have a team of um, advanced clinical practitioners, along with therapists, along with social care that work from seven to late seven days a week. And their main remit is to try and prevent any unnecessary admissions and ensuring that there's a holistic approach to assessment of these patients. So if we break down the five different domains of the comprehensive geriatric, geriatric assessment and go through them. So the first one we have is medical. And we've already talked on previous episodes about um, what at least we should be doing in terms of investigation um, and in terms of medication review. So we already know that people should be getting a full and thorough almost MOT when they come in from an emergency care clinician. So we should know that people are, are, are medically well enough to leave the to, to leave the department. And then we think about cognition. So what are the kind of things we need to think about when we, we're assessing cognition? So I think a, a very easy way, um, a very easy and quick way of assessing cognition would be to um, look at the 4AT. Um, so if you've got a 4AT of zero, then that's a pretty decent way of, of knowing that your patient um, has got good cognitive function. Um, and then obviously, as they score more and more, that may be because they've already got cognitive impairment um, from um 
dementia, for example, or it may be that, that your patient is suffering from a delirium. And we know that the 4AT is, is very, very sensitive um, and will pick up just shy of about 95% of all deliriums that, that, that come through the door. It's not, it's not as specific, but it definitely is sensitive. Um, and it's very, very quick to do. So you can do it. It takes less than 60 seconds to do. And once you, once you get in the routine of asking the questions and actually it'll just become second nature to you. Um, I think the other thing we, we, we can look at in terms of cognition as well, um, certainly with people who are presenting regularly to the, um, to the emergency department and especially over the past 18 months during the pandemic is is that of of loneliness and social isolation and depression i've certainly noticed that in a number of people who i have seen over the past kind of 18 months where they haven't had the relative their relatives come around so often they haven't had their trips to bingo or their trips to day centers out and they've literally been holed up by themselves an awful lot of them so I think it's something that we consider now. It's not something we are going to be able to kind of solve from an emergency department, but actually being able to highlight this because if they don't engage with their GP or don't engage with any other health workers, we have the prime opportunity to be able to try and um, promote and give them advice as to what to do and how to approach this. So I think that's a, a useful consideration as well. And also those people with say maybe borderline cognitive impairment or beginning to feel like they're getting a little bit more forgetful or suffering kind of with short-term memory loss it's about maybe potentially referring them on to special specialist clinics either a rapid access frailty clinic or a mem memory clinic or giving um you know some detailed kind of advice um in your discharge letter to say this is what you found to the to their gp the next kind of domain that we look at again physical function so we need to know once we once we've ruled out kind of them any medical problems and cognition problems then we need to know if they're able to mobilize or if they're able to get up and about now ideally this would be done by a physio a physio or occupational therapist but it doesn't necessarily need to be especially you know overnight you, you i don't think we're ever going to get business cases where we're going to get therapists in 24 hours a day and i don't think the therapists would thank me for even suggesting that but in an emergency department overnight i think sometimes it's, we can especially from people from care homes we be, can become a little bit complacent and just say okay their x-ray is fine they can go back to their care home but actually ensuring that they can at least mobilize because you know certainly where we work we have a pathway from a hip point of view that if they can if they can't mobilize despite a, you know, a relatively clear x-ray and a um, an analgesia then they go for a ct hip but actually we need to make sure that people are mobilized and are mobilizing to a certain level so that we can send them home safely. So during the day, obviously that, that can be done by the therapist, but obviously nursing staff and even doctors can help mobilize patients. <laughs> Steady on. <laughs> um, and then I suppose we have to think about environment. Um, and environment again is, is, is where they live and how they, how they live there and whether or not it's suitable for them and whether or not it's fully equipped. So obviously occupational therapists are great at doing this, being able to make sure that people have the adequate equipment, adequate um, facilities to be able to manage their activities of daily living. Uh, and often, again, from an emergency department, we will have people who come in who are potentially not frail, but potentially could go home with slightly decreased function because of a stress that we talked about. So i.e. a fractured 
clavicle, fractured wrist, fractured pubic rami that actually make them a little bit less able to carry out their activities of daily living. So we need to try and figure out what their environment is. And then the final one is from a social point of view. So we need to know, to know not just what they have formally, but what they have informally. And often it's the informal side that takes the brunt or takes, relieves a lot of the pressure from care services. So if they have very loving relatives or very caring relatives who are, who are in a position to be able to support them almost 24 hours, 24 hours a day, then but they might be coming to, towards breaking point. So we need to make sure that we're exploring all the networks they have. Some people might be less fortunate and might have no one beside them or no one around them. And, and it's making sure that we, we don't just use kind of like the, the social services, but voluntary services are, are key in this as well. Voluntary services that are able to do shopping, voluntary services that are able to um, kind of prevent social isolation, i.e. befriending services. Often those things are, are, are very they're thought about last, but actually they're very easy to do and can actually help promote a um, promote wellness and well-being for our older frail patients. Yeah, and then I think I think it's important that obviously all those domains are assessed, and then the the whole point of the geriatric assessment is that all of that information then comes together as one. So it's not it's not written on a continuation sheet. It's written in a formal assessment so that all of that information comes together. You can come up with a problem list and then you can come up with a stratified management plan, which is tailored to your patient. So what what matters to me, not what is the matter with me? And I think those five simple things, like we, we, we're almost dismissive about how what we do in, in, in our emergency department, but we do all those things. Um, but probably because we don't formalise it, we, we, we don't kind of think that we are doing it. Yeah, I, I think we do do all of those things, but I think probably we fall at the very last hurdle because we don't put it all together um, as one and then come up with the problem list and the stratified management plan we we all kind of work i don't think we work separately but definitely the assessments are done separately and we we don't add it all up at the end after we've done all the hard work which, which seems a shame really yeah no I, I think i think we we sometimes work in in, in silos rather than a, as a complete team but maybe that's something obviously that's what the evidence is suggesting that people do so um, I think it's it's out there for for teams to to look on. I suppose the one thing, having done all that, and we've talked about it on previous episodes, it's then trying to prevent atriogenic harm. So we 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 have to think about those levels of frailty and the stresses that people have gone under. And again, if we go back to it, what matters to to me, not what is the matter to me. So it's about um trying to be risk averse, not be risk averse, actually try and use the information you have. Because if you've got, if you've done a full thorough assessment, because I think most clinicians, their one worry is what if they come back tomorrow? Yes. And, I, and I think we have like, certainly in our service, we, we, we get frowned upon from a readmission rate. Or we, we, we look at kind of, you know, how many of our patients have come back um, within kind of seven seven to 14 days. Now, I personally work with the frail, frail older population. And, you know, would you really class someone as a readmission who came with chest pain on Tuesday, but then was run over by a bus on Thursday? So actually, 
for a frail person who's got who's multi has multiple comorbidities maybe them coming to hospital twice in a short period of time can be completely unrelated so we have to think about that when we're thinking about who whose best interest is it for them to be for this patient to be admitted is it in my best interests because i don't want to be seen as being unsafe or is it in the patient's best interest yeah i completely agree with that i think i've spoken before i i think we probably need to turn our our thinking on its head a little bit and think well is this patient well enough to come into hospital rather than the other way around because actually we know that bringing bringing particularly frail older people into hospital it's not going to do them it's the the, the end result is that it's not going to do them an awful lot of good no Thank you for listening to The Long Light. We hope you have found today's episode informative and enjoyable. If you would like to contact us, please email thelonglie at outlook.com. And please follow us on Twitter for all the latest news. Our handle is thelonglie1.